Thou wast transfigured on the mount, O Christ our God, revealing thy glory to thy disciples as far as they could bear it. Let thine everlasting light shine upon us sinners through the prayers of the Theotokos, O giver of light, glory to Thee. Hi there. Welcome back to another live Bible study on 1 Corinthians, inspired by the homilies of St. John Chrysostom. My name is Father Thanasio Seros, and I'm the dean here at the St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Cathedral in Tarpon Springs, Florida, and I'm your host for Be Transfigured Ministries. So let's see. Uh, tonight is session 12 of our Bible study, and if you're new, let me tell you how it works. We have a study guide. Uh, the study guide is available on my website, www. Does it even say www anymore? I don't think so. Uh, live a new life in Christ.org. I don't even think you do it anymore. I, just, I think you just type it and you do I think you just type whatever you want anymore anyway. So uh, live a new life in Christ.org and press the button for First Corinthians. And you'll see there a list of all the study guides up through the past sessions, including tonight's, and also a link to all the past videos. So when you miss a session, you'll be able to go back and watch a video. Um, of course, you can't participate. You can't ask questions uh, after the fact, which is, I guess that makes sense. But anyway, um, so if you haven't done that, go ahead and do that very quick and uh, get your study guide ready. Uh, as I said, it is the homilies of St. John Chrysostom, and this is homily 11 uh, on 1 Corinthians. And tonight we're covering 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. It is only a few verses but it's a lot of sermon. Um, so you may have to read it twice, maybe even three times just to absorb it all. He really um, gives us a lot of meat in this one, and I'm just picking out a few things here and there uh, for, tonight's, for tonight's lesson. Again, if you're new, uh, well, the way it works is St. John Chrysostom almost always in his Bible study presentations, he divides it really, not really fully in half, but there's a what I call a traditional chapter-verse analysis, a text analysis, and then sometimes based on one word, sometimes based on a verse, he has what I call the life application, the moral teaching. And so we follow that same pattern in our Bible studies. And then we launch at the very end with a send-off challenge by St. John Chrysostom, because as I say many, many times, it doesn't matter even if we memorize the scriptures, if they do not somehow change our life, it is a worthless exercise. And now to the bad news. This is going to be our last Bible study for the year of 2021. I know we've only had a few. I'm sorry for laughing. Time has just not been our friend this year. Um, with the amount of time that I have to be out of town in November, and then we have Christmas and just a few things in December, and then Epiphany. So we're going to take a break because it's easier for us to have a long span of Bible study sessions rather than have it one week and have it off for three or four weeks and have another week of session. So I apologize in advance. However, so you don't have to miss me too much, you'll always be able to go back and watch and binge watch and after this, this is session 12. That means there's 12 hours on the book of 1 Corinthians you can watch. So I should be able to keep you busy. Uh, but in the meantime, what I definitely suggest doing is take the book of 1 Corinthians and read it every week. Find some time to sit down, even if you want to do Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock like our normal time, and just read it. Get it into you. The scriptures are so filled with some amazing things and we just don't read them enough. And as we say in terms of our Bible study, you get the whole picture this way, which really makes a big difference. Okay, uh, on the study guide, you'll see a link to the homily. So again, tonight is homily 11. 
And once you get there, you'll see all the homilies. So you don't have to wait. You can read them in advance. You can print them off, put them in a notebook if you want, download them, whatever you want. Um, and then I have one other exciting thing to share with everybody tonight. I discovered a new app. I love apps, as everyone knows. I love technology. Well, I long time ago, I purchased the Kindle version of the Orthodox Study Bible. So I have it on my tablet whenever I go traveling. I don't have to worry about the big old thick book and all that kind of thing. However, I did discover there's a new app called Orthodox Study Bible. It is the text of the Orthodox Study Bible with, do you have it already? Yes. With incorporated into it the readings as broken down by the archdiocese. So the ebook version of the Bible is just the Bible as we have it. But the app version, which I think 999 is what I saw it, incorporates the daily readings as part of the um, as from the archdiocese. Only 999. So this is $55. The app I think was $9. Uh, the, um, the Kindle version I think is $9. And this app is $9.99. So definitely worth worth the investment. You'll have it right there. See, do you like it? Do you use it often? I may have to splurge. Maybe, so if Anne was looking for something for Christmas, maybe you can get me the app for Christmas. Okay. No, total, once. It is cheap, right? So I was looking because I like to have things on my phone. So when, whenever I'm anywhere, I have something accessible. So I used to have, it's called ebible.com. I don't like that app anymore. And then so I put Bible Gateway on my phone, which is awesome. And they have an Orthodox Study Bible interactive component. But they want 40 bucks a year. Well, I can buy the whole Bible for 40 bucks. I don't need 40 bucks a year for that. And so that's how I came across this, $9.99 once. So, and you like it. So that is tested by our own Maria who is amazing in her technological. Are you one of those, like, what do they call them? Um, uh, early adopters? Do you like get into things like before the rest I, of the world does? I like buying like the cool app. Yeah, you like the cool app. See that? I know you were an early adopter. Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay. All right, so let's go ahead and start with our prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Shine within our hearts, loving Master, the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our minds that we may comprehend the message of your gospel. Instill in us also reverence for your blessed commandments, so that having conquered sinful desires, we may pursue a spiritual life, thinking and doing all those things which are pleasing to you. For you, Christ our God, are the light of our souls and bodies, and do we give glory together with your fathers without beginning and your all holy, good, and life-creating spirit, always, now, and forever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. So let's see who we have here. We have Philip from Ocala. We have Joanne right here from one of our parishioners. Um, if you're there, make sure you log in and say hello on the chat room. I forgot to mention the chat room. <gasps> oh, no. She's going to change the locks on me before I get home. So we do have a live chat room for Bible study. You have to be using YouTube to participate. But I just have to say that the chat room moderator is the most talented, I mean brilliant-minded, and just an amazing cook also, I have to say. My wife, President Avansi, is the chat room moderator, so feel free to participate in the chat room. She has all the answers anyway, as she's been telling me for all these years. She has all the answers. So they have their own conversation. So I know a couple of you have been doing it online. Just for a moment, because we've got a couple of minutes, tell me, put your microphone on. We'll also, this week, we can test the microphones this way. Again, hopefully the microphone works. Tell me what it's like to do the Bible study online instead of being in person. It's, it's actually cool because you feel like you're, there's people around you because there's a chat, and you can chat with everybody in the world. And Presbyterio does a good job because she, um, she talks about what you talked about, and then she puts it in a different perspective. That See that? Matter. So would you say she is? The best. 
The best chat room moderator? Yes. All right. Now make sure you heard that. If you did not hear her speaking, um, make sure that we know that because I want to make sure the microphones work. So Presbyteria, tell me if the microphone worked okay. I don't see it coming up yet. So, all right. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Just to play it safe in case the microphones were not working again tonight. By the way, so the problem with the microphones, folks at home, when I tested it listening to my phone, I could hear it just fine on Saturday night. But when I went home and watched it after the fact, when I was watching it on YouTube on my computer, I couldn't hear anything that I could hear on my phone from those microphones. I could only hear this microphone. So I don't know if it's going to work or not, but it says that the microphone is working. Okay. All right. So we finally solved that problem. So now I can ask for a volunteer to read. And since you already tested the microphone, why don't you go ahead and read? So chapter 4, verses 3 through 5 is not a whole lot of reading tonight. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. Who will both bring to, to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Okay. So you can see we're going to hit some kind of tough topics. He's going to talk about judgment and stuff tonight. So um, let's just dig right in. So if you're following in the homily, again, if you're new, the way the study guide is broken down is we're breaking down into sections which lines up to the section numbers that the editors have done for the homily. That's the only structural reason they're there. It does not change any thematic material. It doesn't line up to the scriptures anyway. That's merely so you can find it in the text of the homily where the citations are, okay? So here we go, section one, quote number one. Human beings, this is my, this is the way I wrote it. Human beings are preoccupied with being nosy. All right, he didn't use the word nosy, I did, but listen to what he says here. Together with all other ills, I know not how there has come upon man's nature the disease of restless prying and of unreasonable curiosity. Now, keep in mind what he says here. Together with all other ills, he is really kind of ranking this way up there. Of all the things man does, he seems to be preoccupied with prying, okay, and, and of unreasonable curiosity. Unseasonable, I'm sorry, unseasonable curiosity. I guess we're not cats, right, because curiosity killed the cat. Point number two, judging others brings condemnation. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. A kind of thing which has no pleasure as all other sins have, but only punishment and vengeance. For though we are, our, we are ourselves full of 10,000 evils, and bearing the beams in our own eyes, we become exact exquisitors of the offenses of our neighbor, which are not at all bigger than motes. I had to look up the word motes. It literally is a minuscule something. It's an old, I don't think anyone uses that word anymore because I'm like moats, like a moats around a castle. No, this moat means little tiny things. So that's the speck that we hear about, you know, in the scriptures, right? Remove the beam in your, we have all this blinding ourselves and yet we are intense in finding just that smallest speck, you know, um, that our that our that our uh, our neighbors are are dealing with, and that brings judgment and condemnation. He says here, but only punishment and vengeance. So that's the 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 reward we're going to get for for dealing with those types of things. Section number two, quote number three. By saying he is worthy of judgment from others, Saint Paul teaches that we should not judge others. So Saint Paul is saying, look, I'm worthy of judgment. And he's doing that to show us that we shouldn't judge. Listen to what he says here. For first, he says these things not for his own sake, 
but wishing to rescue others from the odium which they had incurred uh, by, from the Corinthians. And in the next place, he limits not the matter to the Corinthians merely, but himself also he deposes from the right of judging, saying that to decree such things was a matter beyond his decision. At least, he adds, I judge not my own self. So what he's trying to say here is that by, by telling everybody, look, I am worthy of being judged, but I'm not going to judge anybody. He's, again, you know, I'll put it in my words, it's as if he's trying to make them feel guilty for judging people. Because if the great St. Paul is worthy of being judged but not to judge, then who are we? I think that's where he's trying to bring them by allowing himself that position, but then saying, look, I, even I don't judge. Okay? And yet he, in a way, does. Point number four. It is arrogant to believe we are better than anyone else. <laughs> Isn't that the truth, right? For this is arrogance, to think one's self better than one's fellow servants. But to pass the true sentence on, things come not of boasting, but of strictness of life. On this account, Paul also, not to exalt himself, but to humble others, and to keep down those who were rising up out of their places, and to persuade them to be modest, said, With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's day. So this is one of the things I've learned in life. Okay, I'm in my 50s. I, uh, this is the year I turned 52. Sometime between January and December 31st, I turned 52. Okay? Um, I won't say when because I don't celebrate my birthday. Anyway, the, here's what I've learned, though. Every time I think I'm better than someone, I always turn around and find someone better than me. Okay, and I think that's my version of what St. Paul here is trying to say. It's pretty arrogant to think that we're better than somebody because there's always somebody better than us. And that's where he's putting himself in saying, look, <laughs> I'm going to put words in St. Paul's mouth, which is kind of dangerous, I'm sure. He's like, look, I know I'm better than you, but I'm letting you judge me, <laughs> you know, as a way to, to kind of shock them into, into, a, into a better behavior. But... I try telling people all the time, look, you're going to find, and take it away from our spiritual life, for example, even in our professional lives, whatever that might be. Let's say we're carpenters. We're always going to find somebody who is a better carpenter than us and somebody who is not as good a carpenter as us. That's just life, right? And so we know that to be true. So why do we present ourselves as so much better than anybody. That's the arrogance that we've got to that we've got to get rid of. Okay. All right. Section three, point number five. If we judge others, we will be judged that much more. Not just that we will be judged, but that much more. Listen to what Chrysostom has to say here. And all this from just one verse. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, right? That's it, just by that one verse. From this make your estimate how great shall be the strictness of the future judgment. It is not, you see, as considering himself unblameable that he says it is not so unmeet for him to be judged by them, but to stop the mouths of those who were doing so unreasonably unreasonably. I guess there's reasonable judgment, and that's where we have to use our discernment, right? That's where we have to use our discernment. Okay, point number six. Even those who are sinless have no authority to judge. Right, so now we're saying, here, look at these high people over here. St. John Christum is saying, even they have no business to be judging us. Listen to what Christum says here. For to proceed, he spoke these things, not to exhibit himself as faultless, but to show that even should there be among them some such person free of transgression, not even he would be worthy to judge the lives of others. And that if he, though conscious to himself of nothing, declare himself guilty, 
much more they who have 10,000 sins to be conscious of, of in themselves. There must be a typo somewhere in there. So, again, this is when he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. So he's, he's acknowledging that he is above them, and still he doesn't have the authority to judge. Okay, right, and that's, this is what Christophe is saying. He's not doing that to declare himself great. He's saying, look, even if, if I can't do it, surely you shouldn't be doing it. Okay, and that's why I say we're going to be judged that much more because even the, even, the, even the good guys, so to speak, are not in a position to judge. Section four. Now we're going to get a little bit more into sin here about why, uh, where judgment does come into play. Section four, point number seven. It is worse to remain in sin than to, f than to fall to sin and repent. Right? So it's better to have sinned and then repent than to sin and remain in sin. That makes sense, right, on the surface. Let's see what he says here. For he who after sinning has practiced repentance is a worthy object not of grief but of gratulations, having passed over into the choir of the righteous. For, and he's quoting Isaiah here, chapter 43, verse 26, declare thou your iniquities first, that you may be justified. But if after sinning one is void of shame, he is not so much to be pitied for falling as for lying where he is fallen. Now if it be a grievous fault not to repent after sins, to be puffed up because of sins, what sort of punishment does it deserve? Right? So he's, he's adding yet, yet another layer. Right? As if it's not bad enough to not repent, but now to be proud of your sins, to be, look at me, this is one of the reasons why I think our society struggles with sin so much. Is that we so desperately want to be told that what we're doing is okay. That what we're doing is not sin. Because if we acknowledge that it is sin, then we know intuitively that we have to change. Right? Um, and so we, our, our society is, is consumed with redefining sin so that we don't have to change. And that's always my struggle with especially some of the contemporary issues that our society is dealing with because it's better to fall a thousand times and to struggle in repentance than to not even try. And what happens is when the society succeeds in convincing us that it's no longer a sin, that repentance is not necessary. The devil has tricked us into not repenting. And that's where the danger lies, right? I mean, people come to me in, in, in confession and, you know, it's the same sin, it's this, because they're struggling. Father, I did it again. Father, I did it again. But that's where the grace is in those forgiving moments because we keep trying to get it right. It's when we give up and just say, ah, that's forget it, I'm just going to do it. You know, It's that slippery slope. All right, section number five, point number eight. There are three reasons we should be judged. Chrysostom says this, correct judgment belongs not to us. One, because though we be conscious to ourselves of nothing, still we need one to reprove our sins with strictness. There's the first one. We need someone to tell us we're wrong. Another, because the most part of, because the most part of the things which are done escape us and are concealed. So we don't even recognize that, that we're doing something wrong, number two. And number three, and for a third besides these, because many things which are done by others seem to us indeed fair, but they come not of a right mind. That was the section of the, of the, of the homily where he's talking about even good behaviors, and that's what it's going to be the next point here, 
even the good behaviors, if they have the wrong intention, is still sinful. It's really an interesting point that he's making here. So let's go right to a point number nine. It is possible to do good with bad intentions. Again, many things we do, good indeed, but not of a right mind. For so we commend many, not from a wish to render them conspicuous, but to wound others by means of them. And the thing done indeed is right for the well-doer is praised, but the intention is corrupt. For it is done of a satanical purpose. For this one has often done not rejoicing with his brother, but desiring to wound the other party. If I'm remembering the homily, he also gets in there and talks about um, when we when we play the role of telling other people they're okay and they're not sinning so that they get tripped up. Right? That's what, and so we think, we th and, and, and I'm going to kind of bring this a little bit contemporary here to prove my point of what society is struggling with. We think it's a good thing to comfort them. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But that action ends up making it worse for them. I think that's what Chris is trying to make the point here. Is that we have the good, you know, there's the good act, but with the wrong intention. Okay? And some purely just to get people trapped in, which is cynical, but happens. But it happens. Okay, section six, point number ten. If both good and bad deeds cannot be trusted, nobody is worthy of judging. So this is kind of bringing us now full circle. So we know the bad things can't be trusted. Now, if the good things can't, if none of that can be trusted, then nobody's worthy of judging. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. Seeing then that not even where we know nothing against ourselves can we be clean from accusations, and where we do anything good, but do it not of a right mind, we are liable of punishment. Consider how vastly men are deceived in their judgments. I think that's a really good one for us because it just, it just solid, solidifies the point that just avoid the judgment altogether. It's just not a safe route to go to. This is, this is a, a really a beautiful um, lesson for us. And again, I've said this before, one of the reasons we're studying Corinthians is because ancient Corinth, life there was very similar to modern America, right? Very multicultural, very highly educated, very affluent, very diversified, but also very divided, right? So a lot of parallels here in terms of our American society. So it really is giving us a good, a good glimpse and then, if you remember back from the first session now, my gosh, over a year ago, um, that St. John Christon was giving these sermons when he was a priest in Antioch. <clears throat> and Antioch also a very cosmopolitan city in the 300s, much like America. So we got a lot of parallels there that we can, that we can learn from. Okay, point number 11. Sin lives in darkness, either in secret or clouded reason. Listen to this point here. And yet, he who is committing sin well says, darkness is around me in walls. For were there not a darkness in his mind, he would not have cast out the fear of God and acted as he pleased. For unless the ruling principle be first darkened, the entrance of sin without fear is a thing impossible. There's that, that clouded reason, right? Another reason for our life of prayer and fasting and all the spiritual disciplines to practice this, 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 this attentiveness, this, um, what the, where's the tip of my tongue? Um, this mindfulness, right? And this is why what Chris sums up with this darkness, if the darkness clouds our reason, 
that we're not even going to be afraid of sinning. We're not even going to worry about it. We're just going to go about our life as if we're in this, in this haze. Um, and for, I know, for example, in a, in a lot of people's lives, whether it be depression or grief is a big one, where there is this cloud and you're really not even thinking clearly. And next thing you know, you come out of the cloud, you didn't even realize you were in the cloud. Um, yeah, I remember that when my mother died, months after, I'm like, oh wow, I was like, I just, oh, did I just wake up? I mean, I knew I was awake, but you, there's that reality of that cloud that hovers over you. And in fact, clouds your judgment. That's what he's talking about here and the danger of that cloudiness. Point number 12, unclean desire blinds us to danger. So now we're talking about the things we desire. For when by unclean desire the soul is made captive, even as a cloud and mist the eyes of the body, so that desire intercepts the foresight of the mind and suffers it to see nothing at any distance, either precipice or hell or fear. But thenceforth, having that deceit as a tyrant over him, he comes to be easily vanquished by sin, and there is raised up before his eyes as it were a wall without windows, which suffers not the ray of righteousness to shine upon the mind, the absurd conceits of lust enclosing it as with a rampart on all sides. That was a really difficult part of the sermon to get through because he starts talking about lust and women and money and all of this um, insatiable reality of, of the passions, which is where we're headed here down um, you know, for our learning applications. So this is all kind of going in that, in that direction. Section number 7.13. <clears throat> right, this is a lot for just three verses, right? Our passions consume our thoughts. This is where we're heading now, going to the passions conversation. Chrysostom says this, And not only this sin has these effects, but every misplaced affection as well. For let us transfer, if you please, the argument from the unchaste woman unto money, and we shall see here also thick and unbroken darkness. For in the former case, inasmuch as the beloved object is one and shut up in one place, the feeling is not so violent. But in the case of money, which shows itself everywhere, in silversmith shops, in taverns, in foundries of gold, in the houses of the wealthy, the passions blow a vehement gale. <laughs> I mean, just that image, right? The passions, because you... You feel, especially now that I've, I've witnessed hurricanes and stuff, you, you, that imagery of that, that force against you, that's those passions. And again, this part of the, the, the homily was tough because he was talking about the woman and, the, and this and that. But it also helps us realize that our surroundings make a difference. That's why he says money here is so difficult because it's unavoidable wherever you go. And again, that being mindful, that mindfulness where we learn to be vigilant, to watch our surroundings so we don't fall into those temptations because our passions are going to consume us and they're going to cloud our reason and they're going to take over. The next thing you know, we're falling down this, falling down this mountain of sin. All right, so going on with our passions, section number 8.14. The passions grow stronger with time unless they are defeated. You know, can I just say, is it just me or is Chrysostom an expert at simply telling us things we already know? <laughs> Am I right? But it helps to hear them. Right? Because just reading that intro, I'm like, well, yeah, hello. <laughs> but it's just, it, it helps to be reminded. That's a, I just, I'm sorry, forgive me. I got distracted there. 
Point number 14. The passions grow stronger with time unless they are defeated. Wherefore I exhort that you cut off the passion at its beginning. For just as a fever on its first attack does not violently burn up the patients with thirst, but on its increase and the heightening of its fire causes from that time incurable thirst, and though one should let them fill themselves full of drink, it puts not out the furnace, but makes it burn fiercer. So also it happens in regard to this passion, unless when it first invades our soul, we stop it and shut the doors. Having got in from that time, it makes the disease of those who have admitted it incurable. For so good things and bad, the longer they abide in us, the more powerful they become. I want to make a parenthesis here about sin in general. We've been together now almost five years. Next week is my fifth anniversary here in Tarpon Springs. I know it seems like forever, but it's only been five years. Um, and you've heard me say dozens of times at least that in, when we discuss sin, one of the big differences between orthodoxy and the rest of the Christian world is that for orthodoxy, sin is sin. We don't have really bad sins versus okay sins versus not so bad sins. All sin is sin. Certain sins cut deeper in terms of the wound making them harder to heal from in terms of repentance. However, just like a paper cut and a laceration are both cuts, one is easier to heal from. This is what comes to mind when I read this passage from Chris's thumb. All sin, if it is rooted out immediately, can be dealt with. The longer we let it fester, is that the right word? right? Like, a, like an infection, it festers, right? The stronger it gets and the more it takes over. And I love the fact that here he says, when he compares it to the fever, if you wait long enough, the fever becomes insatiable. You can't even quench the thirst. That drinking makes the fever even worse. So that leads us to believe that there comes a time when the sinful passion takes over so much that we, we can't even subdue it, right? However, in its simple form, all sin is sin. And that's why we have to be constantly vigilant. And I think it was a few weeks ago that Chris Sistam talked about paying attention to the small sins, just like the cracks on the foundation, right? That was a few weeks ago, where... Even the little thing, the foundation eventually falls apart from the little teeny things. Here he's making a different way of saying it. You let it fester and it becomes worse and worse and worse. It's just um, something that we just have to remain. And again, one of the reasons why fasting is the way it is. Right? Tomorrow's Wednesday. Ooh, a fasting day. Teaches us to be vigilant. Teaches us to always be attentive and mindful of where we are. All right, is if that wasn't all bad, section 9, because Chrysostom is as good about this as St. Paul, don't lose hope. All right, and there are examples of those who defeated passions with God's help, because he just set up this thing, this unquenchable thirst, as if the sins can be so bad that we should lose all hope in defeating them. He goes, don't worry, it's not that bad, there's always hope hope, right? And so here's what Chrysostom says. For if they will consider those who have suffered and fallen into that distemper and have recovered, they will have good hopes respecting the removal of the disease. Who then ever fell into this disease and was easily rid of it? That well-known Zacchaeus. For who could be more fond of money than a publican? But all at once <laughs> 
But all at once he became a man of strict life and pulled out of that blaze. Matthew in like manner, for he too was a publican, living in continual repine. Right? So it's like, this is so wonderful because just when he gets us to the brink of, ah, don't worry, it's not impossible. Here's a couple of examples. And this is why the church shows us these amazing saints. You know, we're reading from St. Paul. St. Paul, the greatest persecutor of Christianity before his conversion. Slaughtered, slaughtered Christians. Able to repent with God's grace, with God's help. So we should never give up hope, even if the fever is let to be, to be so intense. I love how they always bring us back from the brink of despair. All right, so if this is your first time watching our Bible study, this is the end of our textual analysis, and now we go on to our life application, which I have titled here, Learn to Not Desire the Passions. Right? So he's working on this theme that if our, our improper desire brings us in the wrong direction because we want something, that we want it more and more and more of it. So here we have, Learn to not want the desires. Learn to not desire the passions. And uh, this is in section 10 of the homily, point number 16 now in our study guide. The way to defeat the passions is to know they are worthless. I love it. I love it. Listen to what he says here. We must know how worthless the things in question are. And that wealth is a runaway slave and heartless and encompasses its possessors with ills innumerable. And such words like charms let us sound in their ears continually. And as physicians soothe their patients when they ask for cold water by saying that they will give it, making excuses about the spring and the vessel and the fit time and many such things, for such they refuse at once, they make them wild with frenzy. So let us also act towards the lovers of money. And we know that, again, Corinth, very wealthy. Antioch, very wealthy. America, very wealthy. There's a reason these things keep coming into our, into our Bible studies. But to realize that those monies are ultimately worthless. Learn to not even desire the passions. <clears throat> wealth is not sinful, but desiring wealth is sinful. It's an important one. You know, it's not that we all have to be paupers. Okay? It's desiring the wealth that is sinful. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. <clears throat> and let us produce the lessons of true wisdom and say we forbid not riches, but ill-gotten riches. For it is lawful to be rich, but without covetedness, without repine and violence, and all and an ill report from all men. Even Christ gave us examples of worthy, wealthy people. Right? Remember the parable of the talents. One ten, one five, one, and he gave even more, and more, and more, because he did wonderful things with it. I remember a woman. God bless her. I knew her many years ago. She's been dead for a long time now. But to look at her, not quite a pauper, but a very humble lifestyle. You'd never know that she was a wealthy woman. I remember one time she said to me, I just don't understand it. I keep giving it away, and God just keeps giving more. Right? And it was such a beautiful purity in her heart, because I knew her very well. And I'll never forget that. I just can't figure it out. I just keep trying to give it away. God just keeps giving me more. So it's not that the wealth is bad. It's that the desiring of the wealth is bad. And as I say to many people, you know, we know our hearts and God knows our hearts. So we can't go about life, you know, pretending not to want wealth by saying, no, it's not sinful to be wealthy, you know, and then hoard it all in our pockets, you know. Okay, point number 18. 
We gain more by helping others see the needs of others rather than focusing on their sins. We gain more by helping others see the needs of others rather than focusing on their own sins. This is an interesting point he made here. One that I should try to do more often. What wild beast would not be softened by these things? Who is there so savage and inhuman that these things should not make him mild? And let us farther narrate to them the disasters of others, the untimely bereavements, the dwellers in prison, those who are torn in pieces before tribunals, those who are trembling for life, the unlooked for widowhood of women, the sudden reverse of the rich, and let this let us often, and let this let us, and with this let us soften their minds. For by our narrations concerning others, we shall induce them by all means to fear of these evils in their own case too. I love the way he does that. Right? It really is something that I, that I need to put more into action in my own life. Instead of focusing on what others are doing wrong, help them see how others have need, and then hopefully they'll learn to, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. I better back away from that. All right, so that brings us to our send-off. Um, and this is going to last us now until the, after the first of the year. So this is going to be a really good send-off. You didn't hear what she said because her microphone was not on, but she said it better be better than last week's. What was last week's send off? Not. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. There was no send off last week because I ran out of battery. That's right. That's right. So it should be better than last week. That's right. Should we look at last week's send-off anyway? Let's just go back, just for the fun of it, not because you mention it. Oh, my goodness. All right, so last, I totally forgot about that. That's right, so my microphone, my battery ran out last week. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I'm plugged in today, so there'll be no, I'm not, I'm not going to lose my battery tonight. Okay, so by the way, last week's send-off was this. Be known for your generosity. Better than golden crowns are words such as these, that a man should have in his city innumerable persons to proclaim his beneficence. Voices such as these are pleasanter far and sweeter than the voices of the heralds marching before the archons. To be called Savior, Benefactor, Defender, the very names of God, and not covetous, proud, insatiate, and mean. Let us not, I beseech you, let us not have a fancy for any of these titles, but the contrary. For if these spoken on earth make one so splendid and illustrious when they are written in heaven, and God proclaims them on the day they shall come, think what renown, what splendor you shall enjoy. Would that not have been a great way to end last week? <laughs> oh, even Brazil is laughing at me. Okay. All right, so tonight's send-off, which has to last us into January. Bring people away from hell by helping them see the foolishness of their desire. Ooh. All these things let us speak as in pity for the deceased and as depreciating things present in order that by fear and by pity we may soften the cruel mind. And when we see men shrinking into themselves at these narrations, then and not till then, let us introduce to their notice also the doctrine of hell, not as terrifying these, but in compassion for others. And I think that's the beautiful opportunity, right? So St. John Chrysostom really wants us to connect in a human, compassionate level with each other. Once we have finally helped someone realize the worthlessness of their passion, then and only then do we get involved and say, now look, now here's how you get rid of that passion, right? 
But so long as it's not something, as long as it's something we still desire, we're not going to convince other people that it's a bad thing. Right? It happens, you know, to me in, in confession all the time, people know they should confess certain things, but then they admit to me, well, I'm not going to stop doing them because we like what we do. Right? And so there, there's, that, there's that struggle. Let's find that, that source where we can say, ah, now do you see why it's not worth wanting? Because ultimately, we cannot change the desires of other people. We can't. And so all we can do is help others get to that point themselves and then be there to walk with them out of the muck. And I think that's where Christendom wants us to be. And again, so much value in our daily life because let's face it, you know, whether we find ourselves judging other people or being judged by other people, I mean, a lot, tonight's Bible study had a lot of really valuable stuff for us. Most importantly, I think if we were to put maybe a subtitle around, around tonight's Bible study, it would be have a genuine relationship of compassion with each other. You know, and then we can make progress with each other. Then we can help each other avoid hell and find, and find heaven. So there you have it, my brothers and sisters. We've come to the end of another Bible study on 1 Corinthians. This was session 12, homily 11. We're only one-third of the way through uh, 1 Corinthians, so we have plenty of time ahead of us. Unfortunately, because of my travel schedule, we're going to take a break now until after the beginning of the new year. Remember to subscribe to the Bible study email list on my website, liveanewlifeinchrist.org, so you can always receive the updates, especially when we get back on track in January. Until next time, God bless you, and don't forget to live a new life in Christ. Be Transfigured is a production of Be Transfigured Ministries in cooperation with the St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Cathedral in Tarpon Springs, Florida. We depend upon your generosity to maintain our ministry. You can make a safe online donation when you visit our website, liveanewlifeinchrist.org.